Welcome to Government in Plain Language, hosted by Mabinti Yella. Each episode, we talk to subject matter experts and former executives to uncomplicate the business of government. Hello, welcome to Government in Plain Language. I'm your host, Mabinti Yella. Today, we're hosting a very special guest. His name is Jeff Odlum. And Jeff Odlum is a recently retired Foreign Service officer who spent 28 years at the State Department. Now he runs Odlum Global Strategies, a a firm that leverages diplomatic policy and national security expertise to help governments, foundations, companies, and nonprofits build partnerships and solve hard global problems. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me. How are you feeling today? Well, thank you very much for having me on your show, Mabinti. I'm feeling great. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of your show. I'm a big fan of you. <laughs> you already know this. I love, I love, uh, I love Jeff's articles on LinkedIn. If you're, if you're on LinkedIn, you should absolutely follow Jeff. He's so insightful and amazing. Oh, thank so you. This is, this is actually a treat for me. So Jeff, 28 years as a foreign service officer, 28 years in any federal agency is a long time. I mean, let alone, I mean, most people stop at 10, 15 these days, but 28 years, that's a long time. Walk us through that journey. Well, thank you very much, Mabinti. 28 years is a long time. Thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a very positive, impactful, professional journey uh, I had at the State Department. I joined right out, of, right out of college, got into the Foreign Service when I was 22, and had uh, a remarkable set of experiences. I was a diplomat. I was a Foreign Service officer. Uh, I served about half of my career in Washington and about half uh, at U.S. embassies abroad, uh, including London, Vienna, Algiers, Istanbul, Baghdad, Kabul, so all the way across the world. And at back of the State Department, um, I was an office director for an office in the Nuclear Nonproliferation Bureau. I was an office director for Iraq Affairs. I worked on counterterrorism. I worked on European and Middle East security. So a number of really impactful, important issues where I felt like I was directly contributing to the safety and security of American interests and American people. So it was, it was a very positive experience. I'm glad I did it. So, you know, you, you spent 28 years. Why leave? Why join the, the world of consulting? That's a really good question. I mean, I, as I said, when I was there, I was really struck by positively by the, the expertise, the commitment, and the patriotism of my fellow government workers. They're a fantastic resource who go into work every day wanting to serve their country. I ended up leaving for two reasons. Uh, and we'll talk about both in more depth, I'm sure, throughout the interview. One was frustration about the direction of American foreign policy. I mean, one of the things I learned throughout my time there was that the, the U.S. government can do truly great things um, at home and abroad as long as there is a clear mission, sufficient funding for the programs, and as long as the, the American people are supportive of what we're, of what we're trying to do. And the truth is, most of the world it desires American leadership, uh, as long as it's based on the values that we've always presented abroad. So support for freedom, uh, democracy, human rights, capital, uh, open markets and free trade. These are the kind of things that have helped shape a relatively peaceful world and America, uh, the world wants more of that. But it's when American foreign policy becomes uh, more transactional, more impulsive, or even hypocritical, that's when the world starts to give up on us and look elsewhere for leadership. And unfortunately, and not to be political, but unfortunately, I, I was seeing uh, ominous signs of that in, uh, in, by 2017 and, and 2018. And that, that helped persuade me that I could make a better difference uh, in the private sector. Um, the other challenge was technology. 
and we'll talk a lot about that, I'm sure. And 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 generally, the the very slow uh, or non-existent adoption of important transformative new technologies by the State Department. I wanted them to. I, I was hoping the State Department would be. Uh, more effective at adopting new technologies to optimize their mission, and they weren't. And I decided that from the private sector, as a technology consultant, I could probably do a better job of bringing technology to the State Department. And so far, that's bearing out. Mm, Definitely. We'll definitely get into that in more detail a little later in the interview. But, you know, talk us through your role as a manager in the State Department. How did you overcome some of the challenges that you face as a manager? There were two two general sets of challenges that I faced as a manager. One was trying to make sure that the outstanding colleagues whom I was managing had the training and professional opportunities available to, to keep themselves, you know, uh, up to date. Uh, you know, I, I talk about this overarching theme of the State Department not orienting itself, not modernizing itself fast, quick, quickly enough. And one of the uh, one of the related problems was there wasn't enough opportunity for a civil servant or a foreign service officer or a contractor to take professional training, to take classes in, in leadership or management or information technology to, to make sure that, that the next generation of, of people coming up would be good managers too. I mean, the, 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 the unfortunate truth is that the State Department is really good with a lot of smart people at recommending policy and at analyzing global events and negotiating treaties, but there's no, not enough focus on training people as they go up, as they're promoted, training them to be good leaders and good managers. So the, the Department of Defense, by contrast, every time you're promoted, if you're in the military, you have to take a year off and take a year of leadership training you know, at every rank. State Department doesn't do that at all. So you get people who are continue to get promoted up the chain based on their intellectual skills, which is great, but not enough focus on the ability to be empathetic or to be an active listener or to communicate clearly or to bring stakeholders together on, you know, based on common ground. So that was a significant problem. The other challenge to management was, again, trying to manage effectively when we didn't have the technology to support what we're doing. I mean, it's true. So diplomacy is a, is a people business. It's, a, it's relationship building depends on people. But when you ignore the benefits of, of technologies that can enhance communication or analysis or decision-making, pretty soon you're going to be ineffective. So, for example, with IT technology, you know, I was still using Wang word processing terminal into wow. like 1999. I was still using a BlackBerry phone rather than an iPhone or Android phone when I retired. So with all this amazing stuff happening with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data analytics... State Department is stuck relying on technology from, you know, from the early 2000s. And it got to the point where failure to adapt new technologies was undercutting our effectiveness uh, at American diplomacy. And I can give three quick examples. For example, I was in Afghanistan in 2012, and the Taliban was using social media platforms like Twitter uh, much more effectively than we were. Wow. I was visiting Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan in 2015, and I saw that their security forces we're using advanced facial recognition systems that they got from China, which was helping the security forces identify and detain political activists. It's troubling. And then in May 2017, I saw that China issued a national artificial intelligence strategy, basically telling the world of its intention to be the world's dominant power when it comes to AI by 2030. 
And at that time, in summer of 2017, very few people at the State Department were even talking about AI. Wow. Actually, that's the biggest reason I decided to leave the State Department and move to the private sector to help reorient the State Department from the outside in uh, to leverage and embrace artificial intelligence and machine learning and other related technologies. Hmm. He's touching a lot of wonderful things we can discuss, and we'll definitely go into details as, as it relates to how the U.S. government is faring next to its, you know, its adversaries and its allies in terms of technological innovation. But you know, one of the things that I wanted to touch upon with you was how you're able to really kind of negotiate and manage all these stakeholder interests. I mean, the State Department is such a unique organization because its jurisdiction is international too. You know, it's not just concerned with domestic interest, it's international as well. And so you have so many different layers and so many different complicated things that you have to negotiate and navigate to kind of get things done. So how do you manage all of the stakeholder interests? You're absolutely right. It's very, it can be very complicated. It's like four dimensional chess because, yeah. I mean, ultimately the, the number one constituency for uh, foreign service officers for the State Department is the American people. We work on behalf of the American people. And we have to follow the Constitution as, as kind of the guiding document. But so you have a stakeholder of the public, you have the stakeholder of the interagency, the other agencies, and of course, the Secretary of State and the President. And then you have the stakeholders of the foreign countries who are oftentimes allies and partners that we're trying to cooperate with to find common ground or common cause. So there are a lot of competing interests in the mix. And the way you you balance that and the way you get to, you know, the happy, happy center is number one, through clear and honest communication. You have to understand what every stakeholders and every constituents, what their needs are, what their bottom lines are. You have to find shared values, really, and build off of the shared values. And that requires managers to, to, to be able to listen carefully, listen actively communicate clearly with subordinates, with supervisors, and with stakeholders, uh, uh, kind of both horizontal, horizontally and vertically. As I said, good management is not, uh, these skills are not necessarily taught at the State Department. There's, there's, a, there's a foreign service institute that is cutting edge and fantastic at teaching languages and at teaching about political systems and at teaching negotiating tricks and political tradecraft, but they're not yet good at teaching human skills, empathy, active listening. So, you know, I've often thought that really, they need to really bring in psychologists and sociologists and therapists <laughs> into the foreign yeah. service and teach people how to just be good listeners and good managers and leadership. Uh, you know, like I said, DOD sends officers to leadership training school every time they're promoted. Um, the State Department doesn't do that and they, and they really ought to. I think that's some of the biggest you know, issues in, in a lot of agencies. I know from my experience working with the Justice Department and some of the other organizations I work for that that seemed to be a common theme, leadership. You know, folks who may have all the technical skills for the particular position, but not necessarily the management. And like you said, human skills that help you help make an organization successful and effective. You know, mm-hmm. what's, what's buy-in if you can't get buy-in from your employees, right? Right. So, you know, you definitely touched on a lot of great points. So what would you say are some of the lessons that you learned from your tenure at State Department and how have they prepared you for your current role? Well, I mean, the biggest lesson I want to talk about because it is what projected me into the job, what I'm doing now is the concern about not adopting to technology combined with the concerns about the direction that the State Department was headed under the current administration. That's why in, in early 2018, uh, you know, I, I left at the end of 2017, I founded Odlum Global Strategies in early 2018 because I wanted to help the government 
you know, reorient itself to adopting artificial intelligence and related technologies that could really help strengthen American diplomacy, that could really help strengthen national security. And I had come to the, realize I could be more impactful working on it from the outside, from the private sector. So with Avum Global Strategies, what I'm really focusing on doing is trying to help introduce technology companies to the State Department, specifically down to the individual bureaus and individual decision maker level, the people who manage policies or programs that would benefit from these technologies. One of the challenges at the State Department, and it's this way, I think, at most departments and agencies, every bureau, so every subordinate unit within the department has its own mission. It has its own budget and programs and, and policy priorities, and very little technology is managed in an enterprise-wide fashion. It's really bureaucratized. So, so I've enjoyed introducing tech companies to, to different bureaus, appropriate bureaus and offices at state. I help them set up technology demonstrations and pitch their products. I help them navigate the contract acquisition process. And I think slowly but surely, I feel like I'm helping the State Department embrace and adopt more of an innovation mindset. Things like data analytics or AI amplified decision-making and, and I'm seeing <clears throat> good, good evidence that there, there is a lot more interest now, cultural interest at the State Department in public-private partnerships and opportunities with the tech sector. So I think it's, it's heading in the right direction. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about technology. So we might as well just jump into the technology yeah. conversation already, you know. You're so good, Jeff. I wanted to, you know, prompting me to, to be flexible and, and uh, be agile. You know, that's a buzzword in government, as you yep. know. Yeah, got to be agile. agile. Right. So, yeah, let's just dig in, dive into this whole technology uh, aspect of, of government. One of the things that I always ask our guests is like we talk about IT modernization. I feel like I, I don't have as much government experience as you do, or maybe like 15 years federal experience overall. But it's something that I remember all throughout my entire federal career hearing IT modernization, IT modernization, we must go into the cloud, like Mm -hmm. some sort of mystical dimension, you know, but all jokes aside, what does IT modernization even mean anymore? What what are we talking about here? Well, yeah, I mean, it means different things to different people. I mean, the good news is that federal government leaders, I think both in this administration and, and I think strongly in the incoming Biden administration, they understand how important it is to get it right for the U.S. government to reorient, reorient itself to, to an AI-driven world. And so, in fact, in the past years, I, I, I was about to tell you, I've, I've seen the State Department take some really good strides on IT modernization. Um, at State, there's a CIO, a chief information officer, who, who came from the private sector, um, and he's a big fan of moving most of the data and services to the cloud, which, which frankly is the inevitable end goal of IT modernization. It's going to be a long, slow, painful process. There are uh, interoperability issues. There are security issues. I mean, they still need to find the right balance between imposing cumbersome enterprise-wide IT systems on the whole building, while also allowing subordinate bureaus and offices within the department to be able to, to hire or to contract their own IT programs and platforms that work well for their specific needs and strike the right balance. As long as the bureaus are able to take on specific platforms that work with the enterprise-wide systems, I think that's that's the goal. One challenge that that's speeding all this is the FedRAMP certification process. I don't yes. know if you've heard about that, but it's yes. a government-wide program that it's a good thing. It provides a standardized approach to to how you to security assessments for, for cloud products and services. So FedRAMP, it's supposed to empower agencies to use you know the latest cloud technologies 
It emphasizes security as it should and, and, and data protection standards, which it should. And in theory, it's supposed to accelerate the adoption across the government of secure cloud solutions. And again, it's, it's, it's happening, but it's happening at a different pace in, in different agencies. There is a federal government like data council that the State Department's a part of, but it, it's going to be a several year long process. But I, I would bet within five years, we are going to see every government department and agency have FedRAMP certified you know, reliance on, on cloud data and on cloud platforms. And eventually the goal is 100% on the cloud for better or worse. So that's when you talk about IT modernization, you're talking about that. But in the meantime, there, there's going to be a lot of slow, painful working out of how this is going to be implemented at the State Department. Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely heard a lot of things about FedRAMP and even from a policy perspective, the different IT initiatives and things like that under the federal government. But, you know, let's be honest here. We're still... I say we as if I'm still a federal employee. It's hard to knock that, right? right? You know, but you know, it's still, let's be honest, the government is still, the federal government as a whole is still second pace to industry. The government could be on Windows 95 and, you know, mm-hmm. industry's already in some other, you know, some other operating system. So how does the federal government keep up with the rapidly changing technologies in the world? How can agencies keep up? Yeah, it's a twofold problem. It's a problem of the workforce, making sure the workforce is trained to keep up. And it's a problem which which and, and we'll break that down. There are a lot of a lot of aspects to that. And it's a problem of of having better relations between the federal government uh, and, and, and the tech sector, frankly. I mean, I would say that uh, let's start with I guess we could start with the workforce. I mean, you need to you need to make sure there needs to be a, a comprehensive effort to provide two things, uh, hiring of uh, employees who are much more skilled in IT issues and particularly in STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering. There needs to be new authorities and new pipelines for hiring STEM proficient workers uh, as civil servants and as foreign service officers. So instead of focusing on, you know, uh, somebody with a political science degree, have a, have a, a whole new category of, of workers who are data engineers, data scientists, coders, this kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, then there's a security clearance issue. Like the DOD has been pretty good because they, they have a new program called the Cyber Ex- Accepted Service where the Cyber Command is suddenly, it now has an authority to hire top cyber experts from industry and academia instantly without the security clearance process slowing them down. As you know, getting a top secret security clearance can take, you know, 12 months and that's, that's way too long. So through, through DOD's cyber executive service, they're able to hire people and give them right off the bat, unclassified work to do. They promise them that within, I think one month, they will have a secret clearance and within three months they'll have a top secret clearance. I'd love to see that kind of program applied government wide. And, uh, and I'd love to see, more authorities given to allow the State Department to hire people right out of, you know, for, at, at, from academia and from civil society without having to go through a foreign service or civil service exam process, which is really oriented towards kind of the old fashioned definition of what knowledge you need to be a good diplomat. That's, yeah, that's definitely, oh, that's a, that's a good one. That's definitely mm-hmm. something. And then and the other point, sorry, was funding. So the workforce and the funding. I mean, I'd love to see the next Congress agree on there needs to be a significant funding increase of government R&D 
on, on information technology and on AI. You know, we have these great agencies. We have these great centers of excellence within, within the federal government. So you have the National Science Foundation, National Institute of Standards and Technology, National Institutes of Health. You have Department of Energy. You have NASA. You have a number of agencies where they get it right. They understand the importance of, of technology and of technology modernization. So I think we need to, I'd love to see Congress dramatically increase both their budgets for R&D on technology and really require every single government agency to have an, uh, an AI or advanced technology R&D uh, budget line. You know, there, there's no, at the State Department, there is no technology lab within the State Department. Most departments and agencies actually do have technology labs. I mean, goodness knows DOD has hundreds of them, but the State Department has no in-house ability to test, to beta test technology either in the department or in the field. And it's technology that could be used to, you know, optimize decision-making. It could be used to optimize the impact or the influence of diplomacy. So I'd love to see the State Department be authorized and funded to create its own its own technology lab. Yeah, and that's something, you know, we've talked about in, in the past and in our conversations. Um, that's something I think, as you mentioned, the Department of Defense does extremely well, um, yeah. having so many different, not just tech labs, but also kind of, I would say, accelerated programs as well. I know AFWorks, uh, I'm a big fan of AFWorks. It's yeah. one of, you know, one of the best, in my opinion, <laughs> one of the best to kind of do that. So, yeah, speaking of innovation, you know, again, because you're, your experience in the State Department has like international ramifications. Like, how would you say that the federal government or U.S. government's approach to innovation differs from other nations, namely our adversaries? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, culturally, we are a country that values entrepreneurship, and that's great. And that's why we have Silicon Valley, and that's why Silicon Valley leads the world uh, in terms of innovation. But that's the private sector. Our government, unfortunately, does not have a culture of entrepreneurship or a culture of innovation or a culture of, you know, oriented towards technology. And that's where we are finding uh, a big challenge geopolitically, because when you look at some of the what we're now calling, you know, we're now in an era of great power competition where you have Russia and especially China who are near peer adversaries. I mean, militarily and economically, they don't quite match the United States in terms of strength. But in some ways, they're trying to leapfrog our power projection capability by developing these new technologies more aggressively than we are. And they can do so because there isn't the separation between the government and the private sector that we have. You know? so, so Silicon Valley is, has its own you know, goals and missions and, and motives. It's, it's profit-driven, frankly. And they will cooperate with the U.S. government in some ways. But as we famously heard, there are some areas where Silicon Valley does not want to cooperate with the government, where the shared values are, are diverging. And a lot of, a lot of tech employees in, in, you know, in the tech sector don't necessarily want to build technology that will support the U.S. military or the U.S. intelligence community. Whereas in China and Russia, the governments and the industries are symbiotic. They're the same thing. You know? So the Chinese government can tell the big Chinese companies like Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent, they can tell them that whatever the technologies they develop have to be funneled towards the government for national security purposes. So in China, they have this, you know, this program called Civil Military Fusion, whereby every single you know, technological advance made by any Chinese company is given for free to the Chinese government to use to help uh, you know, expand China's influence 
in, in the world. And we obviously we don't we can't dictate to Silicon Valley that hey, everything you do you're doing on behalf of the government. It just doesn't work that way. So we've got we've got kind of one arm tied behind our back. I mean, we we do still lead in innovation, but China leads in data. You know, and data mm-hmm. is is what's driving you know the new digital is driving the new digital economy and driving the AI revolution. And China is able to collect data on an order of magnitude or more, you know, 10 orders of magnitude more, more than we are. So I'm a little bit nervous about, unless the U.S. government is, is better able to find common ground and partner with, with Silicon Valley to make sure that we are not going to be leapfrogged by China, um, we run that risk. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something, you, you mentioned China. I remember uh, I had the opportunity to go to China for my business school mm-hmm. negotiations class. Shout outs to American University, Kogas School of Business. <laughs> and that's the thing that really fascinated me was not only like the efficiency in terms of technology bytes, but like what like you mentioned, they collect your data when you enter China. Like they're already collecting your data, your, your face and what your face looks like and where you're going, who, who you're meeting with and things like that already. Um, so I can only imagine just an, the amount of data that's being collected of, of its own citizens. So that, that's a really interesting point. So yeah, we we definitely spent a lot of time talking about, you know, ways in which our adversaries and our allies uh, approach innovation as opposed to the federal government. Going forward, what are some challenges that you notice? One of the things that you mentioned is is this lack of buy-in. Well, not say lack of buy-in, but not necessarily this lack of kind of alignment, not all the time with, with, with industry. What are some other challenges that these the federal government faces when it's trying to kind of incorporate industry and helping it, you know, be stay up to pace with our adversaries and our allies when it comes to innovation? I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good question. The first thing we have to do is like get our own house in order, honestly. I mean, government, again, not to be, to be blunt, to be not very diplomatic, federal government has been dysfunctional in the past few years. It's lost a lot of talent. It's lost a bit of a sense of commitment, I think, to service to all Americans. I know from talking to colleagues, morale is, you know, it's at a low point. So I think the government needs to start and hopefully the next administration has a commitment to starting by hiring back top talent, you know, making government all about nonpartisan problem solving and, you know, effective service delivery for the public. And most of all, leveraging the new technologies that can really help the government speed up or optimize its ability to, to do so. I mean, to do that, you need to, you need to have leadership that can align the people and the policies and the programs effectively. So your question is, you know, how do you get buy-in on all that? And I guess it starts with the values, making sure everybody is buying into the values of the mission, giving your workers the, the training and resources they need to succeed. So there's a, a leadership messaging component. There's a, there's a money or a funding component, which hopefully Congress will be generous about. And then thankfully, like using a few technologies like, you know, AI and machine learning to improve or optimize government functions that I mean, it's an issue that has bipartisan support on, on Congress, so that's 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 encouraging. But I keep on coming back to the education and training programs have to be made available across the board to the entire workforce. You got to help government workers understand and take advantage of what data analytics and and IT modernization look like, and and what they can do to help help uh, help an agency move faster. You know, from making more accurate analysis of the effectiveness of programs to optimizing decision, complex decision-making. I mean, it's all within our reach, but you got to start with like, you know, fixing the dysfunction that's been plaguing the government uh, in, in recent years. 
And I'll change, I mean, it's incremental change. We're a society that prefers evolution to revolution, right? Even right. though we were born out of revolution, we're, you know, we're an incrementalist culture, I think, and especially so certainly in the government. All, all change tends to be incremental at first in the sense that it has to start in a few centers of excellence or centers of innovation and then spread throughout the government over the course of months or years. And, and that's what I think, hope, what I hope we will see happen in the coming uh, couple of years. You mentioned change. You mentioned government dysfunction. You know, let's just put it all out there. How do we, and this is kind of the heart of the show, getting them really the meat and potatoes of the show. How do we make the government great? I mean, how do we, how do we uncomplicate the complicated, you know, you know, where do we start? And you talked about a little bit about the leadership. You talked about a little bit about tra- training and education. What are some other changes that need to be made in terms of transforming government to, to really reaching its potential? Well, again, I, I go back to the people. You need to keep as much talent and experience as you can and, and, I, you know, and train them, as we've talked about. You also need to find a whole new way of hiring the next generation of talent, uh, as we've talked about, focusing on the knowledge areas and the skill sets that, that have not been a priority in the past. Again, data analytics, coding, information science, all that kind of thing. There really is uh, a severe shortage of technology knowledge, of AI knowledge in the, in the government. There are some current initiatives that are helpful, but they're kind of working around the edges and they're not going to recruit, you know, AI and STEM talent at the scale that the government requires. You really need bolder steps. Uh, Effectively, you need a fundamental reimagining, I guess would be the word, of of the way that the federal government recruits and builds um, a digital and a STEM effective workforce. Um, One idea I've seen proposed is creating a, a U.S., United States Digital Service Academy um, kind of like a military academy mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you bring in the best and brightest at the graduate school level, you know, from, from academia, and you find an incentive structure to persuade them to come in and spend, you know, f- give, them, give them an advanced education in, in the latest cutting edge technologies and then have a service obligation of five years working for the federal government. That's just one creative idea of many that I think, and it'll take a patchwork of ideas like that to make government great again. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think you hit it on the nail with incremental, incremental changes uh, is, is definitely crucial to the process, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. When we talk about broadly organizational transformation, mm-hmm. part of this, part of, part of, uh, you know, approaching and part of trying to implement some of the things that you mentioned, you know, and I'm sure you know this as a manager and now as a consultant, there has to be an alignment of people, processes, and priorities. In your experience, uh, either as a state department manager or, or as a consultant currently, what has worked and what hasn't worked when it comes to initially getting people to buy into changes in the government? Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds old fashioned, but it comes down to clear communication, making sure that 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 everyone understands the 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 value. Everyone shares the same values, both individually and and as an organization that everybody understands where the organization needs to go to be successful. And I think you do have that. I think most government workers recognize some of the failings of uh, federal government lately and want to see it be more effective. Again, most government workers understand that they work for the constituency of the American people and that the purpose of government is to improve the quality of lives for Americans and protect them, protect their national security. And so once you've set those once you've re-established those kind of north stars of what you're of what you need government to achieve, then and 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 once the workers themselves have bought into the values of how to get there, 
than just clear active communication. I mean, there's much more, it's so much more complex. Obviously you need congressional support in terms of funding and authorities to allow the executive branch to do what it needs to do. And that leads into the whole problem that we've been facing uh, domestically of political polarization. So I'm looking forward to a time where we can lower the temperature on ideological argument, you know, from, from the extreme left and the extreme right and get government back into the technocratic business of problem solving. There's not enough consensus about that that's what the government should be doing. So, so you know, lowering the temperature on politics will play, you know, that's an early prerequisite to getting government to work again. Yeah, that's definitely a, a salient point, I think. And that's kind of what, what makes the federal government as an entity so complicated, yet it all starts with communication, right? You know, like you said in, in our previous conversation, understanding the needs of the people, understanding what's required and, and people's different interests. I mean, being that, you know, like you said, you, 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 you do have this political polarization. You do have, everybody has, you know, their different interests. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you still have, again, this melt, this pot of congressional approval and need and support in terms of funding and things like that. What are the priorities agency-wise? And, of course, the interests of the actual subdivisions or subordinate organizations that exist in these agencies, how do you get buy-in from decision-makers at the executive level and congressional level to the mid-managers? Because you need all of that and for, in order for you to even begin to talk about change or even begin to talk about some of your solutions that you presented. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one idea would be to, to get the buy-in of lower and mid-level managers, empower them, you know, and, and that's to get back to kind of the entrepreneurial or the innovation culture, which there's not enough of. A lot, in most government agencies are very bureaucratic. They're very hierarchical. And, you know, at the State Department, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have much authority to contribute to important decision making until I was like 15 years into it. You know, I was a, a worker bee. Um, doing interesting work, mind you, but I would love to see, I mean, government won't work if you try to impose a template that's pure Silicon Valley of moving fast and breaking things. That's not going to work. That's not what government yeah. does. Government has to be prudent and careful and and do no harm, kind of like a doctor. But they can do a lot more to empower mid-level and even lower level employees to have, to be stakeholders, to have skin in the game to contribute to important decision-making about policies or about programs, about program implementation, and again, about the technology that, you know, that, that can be brought in to, to, um, to improve things. So I'd love to see, you know, and it actually it parallels with the fact that the, the younger the employee, not to overgeneralize, but generally the younger the employee the more they're aware of how important these new technologies are and new modes of communication and new perspectives. So I would love to see, you know, decisions made about programs or about technology or about contracts or acquisitions involve, uh, you know, bring to the table diverse voices, not just a bunch of, you know, senior executive service people sitting around who all have groupthink, but I'd love to see some mechanism whereby different stakeholders within the bureaucracy, different communities, different people from different ages or different backgrounds or different, you know, uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds or different skill sets can be brought in and given a seat at the table to advise on decisions that affect the entire, the entire agency and bring some more innovation and entrepreneurial culture 
you know, customer discovery, basically, I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. I want senior decision makers to do a little customer discovery with their employees before they, as they try to reorient themselves to, to new technology. And so we, we talked about this, we touched on it a little bit earlier in the conversation, this idea of incremental change. I mean, is it so much, I mean, part of the reason we, were, we haven't really been able to make the type of changes that you're talking about, stuff that to most of us outside looking in are, are fundamental and kind of common sense changes. Is it, is it because our agencies too big and too inundated with older processes and ways of doing things? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there. I think I mean, one of the challenges is that, again, there's people in the government don't think that they have, uh, I mean, they're blinders on. And if you are a civil servant or a foreign service officer and you're working on a particular portfolio, um, you're, uh, A, you develop expertise only in that por- portfolio. And there's not there, there, there tends not to be a wider perspective on an individual level about what's good for the organization. Uh, more importantly, I think prom- the way promotions are handled for the civil service and for the foreign service, the, what they call promotion precepts, like the things you have to demonstrate to get promoted to the next rank or the next level, just involve um, advancing your own specific piece of your own specific portfolio. They don't have anything to do with, again, this innovation mindset or you know being creative in, in other ways. So I would love to see a wholesale reconsideration of the the characteristics or precepts that government agencies use to 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 give promotion to incentivize promotion you know they ought to there ought to be a promotion incentive if you can bring to your boss you know an, an idea for a new technology platform or if you can bring to your boss even if you know that's not necessarily what your what your portfolio is or if you can bring to your boss you know a, a cost saving efficiency model that hasn't been tried before, even if that's not part of your portfolio. So I'd, I'd love to see that kind of more incentive structures in place to empower low and mid-level workers to have a real voice and to get rewarded for it. So another factor or another component to this conversation is, is our federal contractors, the Booz huh. Allens yeah. of the world, the Deloitte's of the world and things of that nature. You know, in some ways, many of these contractors are in them, in them of themselves subject matter experts in mm. terms of organizational management, change management, te- you know, all technical kind of expertise and, and strategy, things of that nature. What role does the, do federal contractors play in this whole conversation? Probably a huge role. And that's a great point. So in the past, my, my experience at the State Department, is we, we hired contractors mostly to help with program implementation, foreign assistance program imp- implementation, uh, in, in fact, from Booz Allen. So when I was an office director in the Nonproliferation Bureau, my office had 15 civil servants and 15 contractors, and they were all doing equivalent quality work. I mean, I tended not to pay attention to who was a contractor and who was a civil servant, even though there are, if you're a contractor in the federal government, you're kind of treated not as, not as equally. You're treated like a second-class citizen, which I, I thought was uh, really unfair and unproductive. But hiring contractors to just help implement um, you know, a, a program, in my opinion, was not an efficient use of contractors. In the future, this is where we really need to rely on you know, some of the more forward-leaning contract companies because we are going to need digital um, and STEM literacy very quickly. And that's where I see a big role for contractors uh, to, to fill gaps. Yeah. So speaking of gaps, you know, one of the ways that the federal government tends to fill that gap is through contractors. But what about hiring within? You know, what about not going? Because contracts, let's be honest, contracting is, is, is also a very expensive endeavor. 
in terms of the hiring and, you know, and the whole process of, of, of granting security clearances and things of that nature can be a bit much. So in terms of the federal workspace, federal workplace itself, totally focused on GS employees, mm-hmm. how do we close the knowledge gap, that technical expertise gap? And how do we transform the federal workplace, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, most important is we need a government workforce with the right skills, you know, with expanded STEM skills, digital skills, AI expertise. So, uh, you know, uh, again, we need more software engineers. We need, we need more data engineers, scientists, machine learning experts, because their knowledge is really is required. If, you, if the government wants to buy or build or use new digital tools and AI empowered tools effectively, they need people on the inside who, who know what they're doing. And the government has been slow to recognize the importance of these technical skills. It is currently struggling to attract or, or develop or retain an AI-capable workforce. And without that AI-capable workforce, you're not going to get very far. It's, it's, so why, I mean, the government, A, they don't have enough in-house expertise to build an AI workforce. They've got to aggressively recruit talent from universities, from the private sector. And, and they can you know, either offer a civil service track or a contractor track. But I mentioned before, today's there are bureaucratic barriers that make hiring and security clearance processes, they're difficult, you know, they're time consuming. And that puts the government at a tremendous disadvantage. If you're uh, a whiz kid in, you know, coding or data science coming out of graduate school, A, Silicon Valley is going to pay you more and B, they can hire you tomorrow, whereas the government's going to pay you a little bit less, although there are a lot of other benefits to working for the government. But the process will take a long time, especially, again, the security clearance process will take a long time. So um, for the departments, any department to become an effective enterprise, they've got to overcome this challenge of developing a a, a digitally proficient workforce quickly. And we talked earlier about some of the things they could do to shorten the security clearance timeline or to find other incentive structures to appeal to you know, the, the best and brightest coming out of graduate school, you've got to imbue them with a sense of mission. You know, you go to Silicon Valley if you want to move fast and break things and make new technology, you know, that'll improve consumers' lives. But you go to the government if you want to improve all Americans' lives and, you know, and, and improve American leadership in the world. And I believe that, you know, at, in college and at grad school, there's still a lot of brilliant young students who, who care about that mission as much as they care about making a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's the common, you know, tag against millennials. Uh, I'm a millennial here. <laughs> Is that, you know, part of the reason, you know, we, we don't stay in a job too long because we're always looking for, for, for other jobs. But, you know, I would, I would definitely argue that to your point, I mean, a lot of us want to be able to use our expertise, what we've trained to do in a way that's going to, going to have meaningful impact on the world. Yep. And I think, you know, to your point, Federal agencies need to communicate that. That's the, that is the government's competitive advantage, right there. It's right. Like there's it's it's not. I mean, the government can't compete with 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 very fancy and beautiful looking offices like on uh, Google. Yeah, you, know, you can't. Right. And maybe and probably the the the, the financial incentive is it is not really comparable. But for millennials who are drawn to a sense of service, who are mission oriented, absolutely, I think the federal government is something. So how do we cut through that? And part of this, this show is called government in plain language. In plain language, how does the government communicate that 
one to kind of quote uh, to um, to paraphrase what our first guest said said how do we make it so that we're not that the government is not signaling to to industry that it's second class, and then the other part that this is this is if you're trying to change the world the government is for you how do we and what do we do to to communicate and signal that to to our young and up and coming geniuses in 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 our in our country mm-hmm. uh, well it starts from the top I mean it and and you know. This White House actually has been fairly active in terms of trying to, in, in terms of reaching out to the, the tech sector. You know, the, this White House did put out an AI national strategy a few, a few maybe about a year ago, and they do have some people who are like the the, the science and technology advisor to the president, this guy named Michael Kratzios, who has Silicon Valley connections, and he has been doing uh, a lot of hard work to try to close that gap in values and shared goals between uh, the government and, and the tech sector. I think the government, I mean, that's at the top level. I think, I think the government ought to do a much better job of beating the bushes, you know, sending people out to, you know, to um, the top schools in the country to recruit, to lobby and recruit people to, to message to them directly. We, they don't, okay. Of course the government doesn't use social media messaging very effectively, Starting too slowly, but but I would love to see a really flashy, you know, social media messaging campaign on Instagram, you know, or on um, Snapchat or all of the other platforms that the kids are using today. That makes that shows how appealing it can be to work for the government. But there is no there is no such messaging campaign, you know. So I'd I'd love to see that, and then use that to build new, better recruitment pipelines you know, from, for university faculty, for PhD students. There are some good programs that can cut through the red tape and bring smart graduate students into the federal government. There's the Pathways Internship Program. Mm -hmm. There's the Presidential Management Fellows Program. But again, those are more oriented towards identifying the best and brightest talent when it comes to international relations or diplomacy or political science. So I'd love to see a Pathways Internship Program or Presidential Management Fellows Program specifically for for science and technology and, you know, open up little, open up these, these offices at all the, the top universities throughout the country and give them a very, you know, shorten the pipeline and give them a fast way of coming into the government, maybe creating a program where the government pays their graduate student tuition in exchange for five years of service with a government agency, helping to modernize the government agency. So there's a whole bunch of ideas out there that are waiting to be tested and tried and given a proof of concept and then implemented. But I don't see the current administration being creative enough on that front. And what are your thoughts in terms of the, the incoming, what are your, what's your feel about that? The incoming uh, administration, because, you know, from my understanding, some of the advisors are previously Obama administrator advisors. What do you, what are your thoughts in terms of their approach so far that we've seen? Well, they will have a lot on their plate yes. <laughs> when they come to anywhere. You know, I mean, we haven't even talked about the, the pandemic, you know, COVID. Right. Um, right. And that obviously is, is like a, a heavy weighted, you know, heavy weight slowing down everything else. Everything, as it should be, is focused on, on, on COVID right now. There will come a time, knock on wood, where, you know, whether it's six months or a year from now, where we've got, you know, a, a range of effective vaccines fully scaled up being provided to the American people, and we can put this crazy chapter in our history behind us. So I wouldn't necessarily demand or expect that the incoming administration 
will have as number one priority the, you know, the, the issues we've been talking about, making right. government work better, uh, you know, IT modernization, you know, better hiring practices. But those should be a priority within a few months, frankly, because, you know, a, a COVID vaccine alone is just going to get us back to where we were in terms of, you know, how the government functions, get us back to where we were pre-COVID. We need to create a new paradigm, a transformative paradigm in terms of how government operates. So, and it, it, a lot will depend on who, the people are who are appointed to be the heads and 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 lower and undersecretary level of the different agencies. You know, do they have? Do they recognize the importance of technology modernization? Uh, I, I think they do. I mean, you know, they haven't named a lot of names yet, but right. I'm confident that they will be very pro science uh, and very pro technology and more perhaps more innovative in their approach than the current administration has been. Yeah, hope so. We hope. We hope definitely. And I think in some ways, COVID kind of presents in, in a, not to be crude, a clean s- slate for government in some ways, right? right. We're right. entering, we've never been in, we've never been here before. Well, to this degree, I mean, we haven't had a global pandemic, uh, at least in my lifetime. <laughs> you know? In about a hundred um, years, right? Right. <laughs> so, and, and in some ways it, it, it does, I think, allow for some sort of, I don't want to say risk taking, but, you know, mm. change, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that our, our previous uh, guest talked about a lot was, you know, it's not necessarily a adverse, adverse mentality or sentiment towards change. It's more so fear of messing up. <laughs> right. right. Fear of failure. Right. Fear, fear, fear of failure. And, and what are your thoughts on that? that- yeah, that's a great point. That's another cultural uh, impediment on, on the federal government. You know, in the tech sector, failure is almost a badge of honor, right? Like most right. startups, and as we know from our experience with, with FedTech, most startups fail. And you learn from failure more than you learn from success. In the federal government, failure means you don't get promoted. Or in the worst case scenario, you know, you get fired. So that could be an important, you know, change in, in governmental culture. That we need to be trying new things in a, in a faster way, in a more creative way. And if we fail, that's not a big deal. We learn from the failure and, and move on. So Mabinti, that's a really important point you've made. That I, I'd like to give that more thought about how to translate that into actual an actual government directive. That, that you know, ex- being accepting of, of failure as long as you learn from the failure and then build off of it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the, because like you said, fear of your program being losing funding, you losing your job or you're being demoted, all these different factors, you know, make it difficult for people who may have innovative and more and and groundbreaking ideas to kind of voice those, uh, those opinions. So we have a little bit of time. I do want to get into your experience at FedTech. That's how we met. Actually, you were my, my mentor. Amazing mentor at that. For those who don't know about FedTech, FedTech is a it's an organization, it's a program rather that brings together entrepreneurs and federal innovators to help commercialize emerging technologies. Right. So, how has your role as a FedTech mentor shaped your understanding of the challenges federal agencies face, keeping pace with industry? It has directly, directly, meaningfully helped. I mean, I, I love FedTech. As you said, it's a really valuable model. As a startup accelerator, not a lot of other startup you know, cohorts or studios do exactly what they do, teaching entrepreneurs about how to commercialize specifically U.S. government technology. You know, we mentioned, we talked about how there are over 300 U.S. government labs out there, and they're 
they've generated, I think, several hundred thousand patents that are waiting to be commercialized. And if you look at the iPhone, for example, over two dozen technologies within the iPhone came from government labs. So their program, it's as I've been a mentor four times now, and it's taught me so much about entrepreneurism, about validating new technologies for the marketplace, about how technology transfer works from the government to the private sector, and, and where to find the money, funding, uh, and grants for, for new and emerging technologies. What I love about FedTech is it really helps fill what's called the valley of death between government labs whose mission is to build or is to develop science, who, who do research pure science and then applied science and research. And then at the other end of the spectrum is private sector who commercialize technologies for profit, but there's a big gap in the middle between the applied research and the commercial validity of the technology and FedTech fills that gap. And as a mentor, so when I, when I created Alum Global Strategies, I knew a lot about how government works, but I didn't know enough about technology because my background is international relations. So the two years I've been with FedTech as a mentor, I've learned invaluable knowledge about the technology transfer process, about how to validate a technology for commercial purposes, the right questions to ask, um, how to conduct customer discovery, you know, to test your hypotheses, and how to, frankly, how to get how to get funding, you know, for technologies, and how to speak to how to bridge the gap between communicating with a government hiring a government contract manager and a lab scientist because the two of them are from very different universes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so Definitely. learn how to be the the linguistic whisperer between the two. So it's been incredibly valuable. I love FedTech. And I would encourage your your viewers and your listeners to look up FedTech and to do what you did and to to be an entrepreneur or to do what I did and to be a mentor. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an invaluable opportunity for me being able to apply what I learned in business school and especially the lean startup method to, you know, to the paradigm in that, that that is fed tech. Right. So we've got a little bit of time and, and again, it's been such a wonderful conversation. I mean, we could probably go on for hours. Let's totally. be honest. Right. So, I have so many more questions, but I wanted to, I wanted to get back to your organization and what are some of the things you guys are working on? you want the viewers, our viewers and our listeners to know about? So two things I'd love to talk about. One is, is separate from Autumn Global Strategies, I wanted to mention the consulting work I've been doing with the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which is, they, they've, they hired me as a consultant, as a special government expert. And a lot of the, there's a lot of creative thinking going on. It's, this is a federal, uh, a congressionally funded independent commission created about two years ago with the mandate of writing reports, writing recommendations for the White House and Congress and the executive branch, very specific steps they should be taking to help maintain U.S. global leadership on AI. Because as we talked about, if, if China or Russia overtakes us and becomes the dominant leader in AI, that has severe national security implications uh, for us because AI, when used in a weapon system or for intelligence purposes or even for diplomacy, can increase the speed and the effectiveness and the latency and the potency of that to the point where we could be uh, find ourselves at a great disadvantage if we don't maintain leadership. So I've been helping advise the National Security Commission on AI specifically about how AI can impact and amplify American diplomacy and specifically about steps the State Department should be taking to reorient itself to leverage AI in this great power competition. So I would encourage your readers, sorry, your watchers and your, your listeners and viewers to go to their website which is nscai.org, and read all of the reports. They have one more final report coming out. It'll be coming out in March of 2021 that they will present to the next administration coming in 
to kind of uh, encapsulate and give the overview of, of everything that they've been recommending to date. But it's a really valuable roadmap and it's you know really meant for all of the national security oriented agencies in the government. And I'm hoping that they will pay, pay close attention. And if they follow the recommendations, I think we will find ourselves able to maintain global leadership on AI for, for decades to come. So I wanted to plug that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. So final thoughts. I wanted to get, we've, we, we covered a lot of different elements of this big issue called how do we make government great again and workplace transformation as well as you know, IT modernization. If you can leave our listeners with maybe three points to think about going forward, what would what they be? Wow, that's a great question. So as I said earlier in our, in our conversation, I mean, I, I feel optimistic because America can do great things at home. The government can do great things at home um, and overseas um, when we have clear, strong leadership and a clear mission and appropriate funding and when the American people are behind it, when it's bipartisan or nonpartisan. And the world welcomes American leadership as long as it's based on our core values. So, I mean, right now we do face probably the most serious set of global challenges we've ever faced. Uh, The pandemic, climate change, rising nationalism everywhere, this rise of China as a peer competitor. And at home, obviously, we're facing an economic crisis. We've got deep political polarization like we talked about. We're dealing with a painful reckoning over America's legacy of, of racial discrimination, and then concerns about AI and automation and how disruptive they're going to be. Because I've talked very positively about technology, and obviously technology has some negative implications too. Um, that's a whole other conversation. So it's a full plate of challenges, and none are going to be solved quickly. And here's the most important point I want to leave. None will be solved by the government alone. I mean, we, we were talking about government in plain language, and that's really important. But it's also time for a new approach or a new paradigm for public-private partnerships. That to me is the special secret sauce that will help us. I would love to see public-private partnerships become a a standard thing for national and state and local governments where they partner with industry, they partner with small businesses like mine and yours, where they bring in civil society and NGOs and academia and the international community and the UN system, and they marshal the resources and expertise of all of these stakeholders. Wow. What a lively, insightful conversation. I mean, we could literally go on for hours. You, you just bring such enthusiasm, insight, and just, uh, you're just so amazing. You know, I'm a big fan of you, Jeff. You oh, know thank this. you. So I love I, it when we talk. I know. It's always a fun conversation. So I wanted to give this opportunity, give you this opportunity to kind of give our listeners and our viewers maybe some points, some final thoughts about this whole beautiful thing called government, the federal government, you know, how do we make it great again? Because we talked a lot about, you know, organizational transformation. We talked about education. We talked about change management, IT modernization. What are some five, what are some, what are three things rather that you want to leave our listeners with? Wow. Great question. Three most important takeaways. Right. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the optimism that the U S government can, can do great things both domestically and, and globally. When the leadership is clear, when the mission is clear, when Congress is, is funding the government appropriately, and when it's bipartisan or nonpartisan, when the American people are behind it. The world really wants, desires strong American leadership uh, globally, as long as it's based on our core values. So we need to get back to that. That's point number one. Right now, we do face probably the most serious set of global challenges I think we've faced in our lifetimes for sure. Uh, the, the pandemic we talked about 
climate change is coming at us fast. The, this rise of China as a, as a peer competitor, we have to manage that carefully. And at home, obviously, we're facing, facing an economic crisis, the political polarization we talked about, a very difficult reckoning over America's legacy with race, which has to be reckoned with. And then concerns about how much the new technologies like AI and automation are going to disrupt people's lives. There's a negative side to technology, which we didn't talk about because I'm a more of a tech evangelist, but that could be a topic for a future conversation. Absolutely. It's a full plate of challenges and none are going to be solved quickly. And here's point number two, most importantly, none of them are going to be solved by the U.S. government alone. We really need to create a new model of multi-stakeholder partnerships, public-private partnerships, where it becomes a regular thing for government at the national and state and local level to partner with industry, big industry and small industry, small businesses, civil society, academia, NGOs and think tanks, and then the international community and the UN system. And if you marshal all of these stakeholders together, all of their expertise and resources, that's what's needed to fix the complex problems that are coming down the pike. That's point number two. Most importantly, getting that ball rolling, point number three, is the job of the federal government because only the federal government can convene all of these stakeholders. So if you bring in multi-sector stakeholders and then leverage the power of technology in a positive way, AI, machine learning, data analytics, to comb through the data, find the most uh, insightful solution sets, that's the special sauce that I think is going to get us out of the messes that we've talked about and hopefully renew people's faith in government and hopefully renew the world's faith uh, in the United States. Great. I couldn't have said it better, better myself, <laughs> to be honest. Of course, Jeff would leave us with a, such a salient, amazing point. Thank you again so much, Jeff. I really do appreciate um, having this conversation. We, we will definitely have to do with part two, maybe a six months from now. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, I would love it. The state of the government, the state of innovation. But until then, you know, have a great one. And for my listeners, thank you for joining us. And again, this is government in plain language, cutting through all the pork and acronyms to get to the truth. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the show, please share it with others. Share it on social media and even leave a review. To catch all the latest from our team, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MSY Associates. That's MSY Associates. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.